The Imprint Companion Podcast is, of course, brought to you by Imprint Films. Imprint Films is a brand new Australian boutique Blu-ray label. Check them out for limited edition deluxe Blu-ray releases of long-requested and previously unreleased films. Check out the past and future releases online at imprintfilms.com.au. You can follow Imprint Films on Twitter at imprint underscore films or one word on Instagram at imprint films, no space. And finally on the Facebook page at imprint films AU. Hello and welcome to Imprint Companion, the officially sanctioned podcast dedicated to chronicling the release of Australia's first boutique Blu-ray label, Imprint from Vivision. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos and joining me as always is my friend Blake Howard. Alexi, so good to be back. Australian DVD culture has never been more aroused than listening to you and I talk about Imprint Films. I, we've gotten some lovely feedback about our first little batch of episodes. Yeah, it's good. I mean, look, it's and you know, this is another twofer um, for the August batch, so it's super exciting to be like on the front of this release, so people can kind of get it, get amongst it. Um, but you know, the, the October one is going to be even bigger, so we're I'm um, I'm I'm even more excited about every every new releases they come. But we've got some bangers dropping in, yes. in both August and October. Who would have thought this would become so fortuitous almost immediately that we would be doing this? <laughs> I know. It's, I it's am. A- s- I'm just so stoked on the releases that we've got upcoming. But this batch that we're talking about this week, I also so many great discoveries in here. So many of my favorite filmmakers being represented uh, with films that I had not seen before. And every and, single and, watch in here I hadn't seen. And and adaptions of you know uh, uh, my other podcast that occupies so much of my life is all the president's mm-hmm. minutes. It's written by William Goldman, who is kind of the dean of screenwriters. I've heard him called, which is my favorite description of him. Oh, and, perfect description. Uh, perfect description of him. And he's also a novelist. And this is another adaption of a William Goldman novel um, into a film that I'd never seen before. And it's not something that he adapted himself, which is all the more interesting. So that one had me, uh, it piqued my curiosity for, and um, we're definitely going to be discussing that one in episode one. So we dive straight into these releases with Spine number six, the first in this August batch. And I don't know if people can hear this, but this is me actually properly, Ooh. sexily unboxing the delightful is, number six. He has peeled it open. He has de-sheathed it from the <laughs> gorgeous slipcover. The movie that is Spine number six is When Worlds Collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Yeah, when worlds collide, it is... George Powell's science fiction epic, massive tidal waves, earthquakes, the impending destruction of our world. 
The decisions of who gets to live or die brings out the best and the worst in our people. A really lovely companion to our first on War of the Worlds, another massive sci-fi and influential one. This was a real ripper, a ri- and particularly uh, for a movie that you know won sort of uh, uh, awards for color. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous transfer. This one. Yeah, this is one that comes from a 4K scan of the original 35mm print. And I hadn't really known too much about this one. And to be honest, of the batch that we received, this was probably the one that I was least excited to watch because in the previous batch we had gotten uh, a high-class or high-end classic (laughs) sci-fi with World of the Worlds and then a a fantastic B-movie in the... I married a monster from outer space. And I thought, I was like, oh, am I ready to dive back down this well with something like this? So it was the one that I'd left to last. And let me tell you, I was once again just really into this movie because I think it had such an interesting tone. And I think a lot of the ones we're going to talk about today, that's going to be the thing that I talk about is like a lot of these films have a singular tone. And this one, it really balances like... Like War of the Worlds, a bleakness. It's the end of the world that we're facing. It is a classic sci-fi disaster movie. Pretty much the granddaddy of all world-ending disaster movies that don't have like an alien force coming to us. This is like kind of like a, a natural disaster in some way where there is another planet hurtling towards Earth uh, <laughs> and a fallen star, lots of things coming towards us. So it's kind of an end-of-the-world natural disaster movie like your Day After Tomorrow, your 2012s. Also, your Deep Impacts. Yes. and Which did you know, you know I... that <laughs> Deep Impact began as a remake of this movie and then oh it changed God. enough that they were like, well, we don't need to put that in there anymore because it changed enough. But like into like up until production, that it was like classified as a remake of this. You know that the only reason that Deep Impact is not a When Worlds Collide like direct remake is because of just how much like '90s Hollywood love to go. Oh shit, they're doing an asteroid movie. You bet your sweet ass, we're doing an asteroid movie, <laughs> and they just like changed it completely to make it an asteroid. One thing that I want to say, like, uh, as far as tone and mood that really Mm. struck me with When Worlds Collide is it sets up, like, a not not necessarily great view of, like, contemporary life, which is Mm. kind of refreshing because in a lot of American, in a lot of American sort of, uh, like, a a prestige picture, prestige pictures that are being made around the time of this movie. This is 1951. It's all about like American triumphalism and all this sort of stuff. But already in When Worlds Collide, like people are out drinking, doing a little bit Mm -hmm. of like dodgy stuff. You know, they're not, they're not exactly like great, you know, like perfect people. They've got their flaws. And I feel like it's like, that's a great, uh, it's a great sort of place in sci-fi where people can Mm. sort of like find that, like, we're just going to be, as naked and authentic as real as real as possible, because then we want to explore what happens when you put real people in extraordinary situations. And so I feel yes. like, especially in like the um, uh, the interactions at like their UN, which is not called a UN, but like their UN and how like the countries <laughs> are bickering and stuff like that. Like, yeah, it's, it actually is. It's 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 sort of seeding a lot of that cold war like discontent like post-war like not everything Mm. is hunky-dory not everyone is in solidarity with one another and it's like i just love i love that it lays that platform and then it sort of takes it like completely into a a, like a classic 
like a Stone Cold style sci-fi classic sort of movie. And it also has like this kind of playfulness about it as well. Like it's a little bit funny. It knows that it's absurd that it's this kind of like <laughs> science fiction Noah's Ark where they realize there's nothing that they can do to stop the entire population of the world crumbling. Because originally, like the planet, the planet coming closer causes like uh, insane environmental effects where there's tidal waves coming yep. in and it's going to destroy coastal cities. And then it becomes apparent, like, oh, the planet's going to hurtle into us. So we've got one rocket because this is before space travel yeah. of any kind in yeah. the world. So they've got this rocket that's kind of like set up like a roller coaster ramp thing where it's going to go <laughs> across this rail and shoot up. And it was interesting to just see like that's what they thought rockets were going to be like. They thought they would have to like b- build momentum before leaving the earth that way. And there's something they, really They delightful. thought rockets were going to take off like the bush beast did at Australia's Wonderland. Like that's Ooh. how that, – that was a <laughs> – that's a roller coaster <laughs> deep cut for anyone in Sydney, um, and, yeah. and def- definitely of our youth. But yeah, no, it was it's, it's really it's 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 really fun. And um, and if you do de-slip this bad boy, um, mm. if you look at the When Worlds Collide slipcase cover, if you're lucky enough to be in that first fifteen hundred, you see yeah. um, a very sort of classic looking old school, you know, definitely War of the Worlds inspired um, 50s pulp cover on the outside. Yes. And the inside case is actually the glorious rocket and these planets, and the red and blue planet. It's very cool. Minimal, minimal. Like, I like that the slip covers and the insert covers, like the actual, like, oyster shell covers are different. I like yes. that there is a difference between them. And Definitely. it's not just, like, a difference. Oh, it's like we got the original poster and then we got something different on the inside. That is what they do, but there is a stylistic difference between them. Like if it's a maximalist poster on the outside, it's going to be a minimalist thing on the inside. And I think that these two designs, they always work to complement each other. And I think that's something that I really at digging about the direction of the art style with imprints so far. I, I'm liking that both you and I, we can classify ourselves. And I think if we were both on Tinder, we could say maximalist on the outside, minimalist yes. on the inside. Minimalist. <laughs> I'm maximalist on top, minimalist down below. I'll be honest. That's what I'm working with here. But I think that uh, another thing I really liked about this film was the, I, like, I do have like a fondness for like a classic sci-fi aesthetically and like kind of classic adventure movies with what they bring to an aesthetic production design wise. And also I love being able to see the seams of special effects. Yes. And I think with these ones you can, because it's like often has to be in camera effects that you can kind of see how that they've created these things. So there's some really lovely miniatures that are obviously miniatures the, the whole way through, kind of like a Thunderbirds type vibe or something like that, where yes. I always love something like that. But then there's some really gorgeous special effects that are clearly like matte paintings. And then there'll be like a transparency to the matte painting. So you'll see some water flowing underneath it and to make it kind of seem like a seamless image. And, you know, this movie is about a Noah's Ark rocket flying to a new distant world. And there is a moment where they enter this new world. This is spoilers for a climax for a (laughs) 70-year-old movie. But they arrive on this distant world and it's just them looking at this matte painting of the world in front of them. And there's details in there that I'm just like, I wish that there was more movie to explore what was going to happen next or if there was a sequel to this movie about these new 
Earth refugees living on this new world. I really enjoyed this movie much more than I expected to. I I think that this is a strong recommendation for me if you have that, if you're into like old school special effects, practical effects, and old school science fiction aesthetic, this is one to take a look at. Yeah, it's it's it it sort of just escapes some of the um it sort of escapes some of the like the required curriculum of sci-fi, but it has its mm. like you can see how influential it is. And I think I don't know whether it's because it's it's sort of bleak with the end of the world and then has that hopeful ending with like we're just new refugees going to a new place, like digging in and doing mm. our thing. Um but yeah, no, I this is another surprise for me. I like I I I'm we, unlike War of the Worlds, which I think both you and I are familiar with, and we're just like really mm. doting on the print and 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 getting a uh, getting a chance to see it in high definition and in all its glory, but this was a genuine surprise for me too. Like I, I really mm. liked it. I like old school sci-fi. I like B movie sci-fi particularly, and I think there is something to be said about just being able to go back and check it out. And it does have some pretty rad special features on there too. So Kim Newman and Barry Forshaw mm. do um, uh, an audio commentary. There's a stack of interviews with uh, the filmmakers yeah. and and the producers around this, including. Um, extended interviews with people who were influenced by it, like Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry. Like OG, you've got... Ray um, Harryhausen, Ray, Ray, Ray Bradbury. Yeah, it's incredible. Incredible. And then oh, Roy-, Roy Disney as well. My God, we're just saying <laughs> them at the same time. <laughs> uh, it's it's a sack of interviews worth your... Like mm. this one is a, a sci-fi geek. If you don't have this in your collection... You kind of want it, and it's um, mm. it's actually so funny. Like recently, checking out some of the Disney Plus Mandalorian documentaries, where they were talking about like they're they're basically yeah. they're now designing these things called volumes, where they can create um, you know, basically digital matte paintings that render the worlds yeah. behind you. And like you look at this, and it's like, man, it feels like such a throwback to this era. So mm. this era feels even more important than ever. So yeah, this was a really good one. Yeah, and this is all the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. I would recommend it to any young filmmakers because yes. there are some definitely some very some very backwards things in this movie <laughs> that I would love a young filmmaker to see and really work with to kind of make something really exciting and new and a new take on this. Because I will say this, this is a movie where they pick 40 people to live on the next world that can only go on this and every single one of them is a white person looks exactly the same as the last person <laughs> so i think someone could do something very exciting parodying this or creating a new vision based on this yeah i think i think so too i think i, I think any argument where you've got to like pick the best of them it seems to have fallen in the back end of like sci-fi where they're like yeah we've got an, yeah we've got an arc and we've got an arc of people that are going to go and these special people you don't actually get to see them but i think that this movie um yeah, you could totally have a lot of fun if, uh, unless the deep impact it is, people. Uh, it is a lottery system that they go by. It's not <laughs> who earned the right to be there. So no, it's very no. silly. It's it's good. It's very good. All right. Well, we've got it. We've got it from from a sci-fi classic to <laughs> just to a, I think a modern classic in Wigs and Rod Steiger, which is no way to treat a lady. Can I tell you something, Mrs. Malloy? You've got quite a figure yourself. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes. You've got a figure that would please the eye of many a mature man, I tell you that. And my mother. Oh. 
My mother used to walk down the streets like a queen. And the men would turn and praise her with their eyes. She had one thing peculiar about her, though. She had a little delicate spot right here. You just touch it, and she laughed and giggled like a schoolgirl. Just touch it like that, and she'd laugh and giggle, and giggle and laugh, and laugh and giggle, and giggle and laugh and giggle and giggle. Touch it there, and touch it there, and make it giggle and giggle. Jump, 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 and on the poster you've got to love that it says on the front or is it (laughs) (laughs) i mean i would argue it's not (laughs) just put it right on the front street it's it's not it's not uh i'm gonna de-slip oh you're de-slipping from Suspense Master William Goldman's original novel comes the extraordinary account of a plumber who kills a dowdy matron, a priest who kills a dowdy matron, a policeman who kills a dowdy matron. Actually, they're the same man, a psychotic master of disguise who has all of New York trembling as a sick strangling is reported in the papers. Blake, had you ever heard of No Way to Treat a Lady? No, never heard of it before. Saw William Goldman on the our second episode when we previewed this month um, of Pink Companion. I was like, holy shit, this is a William Goldman blind spot. I must mm-hmm. see what this is. And I, you know, and for better or worse, that comes with certain expectations. You know, I was yes. like, this is going to be smart. It's going to like have good structure. It's going to be snappy dialogue. It's going to be great. And then. What you see, I guess, and, and this is what I have to say, is like, it is, it is the oddball, I guess, for me of this entire of this entire batch because it is such a, a strange mix of, you know, it's got shades of things like Copycat, like from the '90s, which is a terrific yeah. serial killer movie. It's got shades of like The Jackal with Bruce Willis, if you've seen that. For folks, obviously the same era as well, like mm-hmm. ma- ma- Master of Disguise, serial killers, badasses. But it also then has this like weird Seth Rogen, Barbara Streisand, mother and son guilt Jewish <laughs> yeah. guilt trip um, yeah. vibe about like fi- you need to find an appropriate um, suitor, and it just kind of turns this whole thing into like a weird meat cute George Siegel like rom-com with added serial killers. And I just, this, I don't, it's kind of fascinating because it's so incongruous in one moment. You've got like mm. Rod Steiger strangling a woman and doing like weird voice, like his many wonderful and weird voices down the line to George Siegel. And the next minute George Siegel's like, would you like to go out and get a meal with like, um, yes. with, with, uh, with, um, with Lee Remick. And it's just such a strange, it's a really deeply strange movie. I think I kind of loved this because <laughs> I just put it in the player. I totally blank slated this, having no idea what was no going to come. I just saw that. I saw that it was a serial killer movie. That's it. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was flabbergasted by what I saw. (laughs) I think I fell in love with it because I think the best way to describe this movie is imagine if you're watching David Fincher's Zodiac because this movie does have like a bit of that feeling of like Zodiac and and Summer of Sam, like Spike Lee's Summer of Sam, where you've got a feeling of of the city feeling under grips by a serial killer and feeling like this strain of a serial killer's presence around them and this fear of that emanating throughout it. 
Imagine you're watching Zodiac, you have that feeling. And then you see the scenes where the Zodiac killer kills people. But then it's played by Dana Carvey in Master of Disguise, wearing a different <laughs> outfit, doing a crazy impersonation each time, doing a wonderful characterized caricature of like some weird sketch character as he kills these women. <laughs> and then the cop that's chasing them is... A George Siegel Jewish romantic comedy because oh that's God. what this is, and I was I was fascinated by it because I was like, this is legit a serial killer movie. It the serial killer movie is legitimately yeah. funny, and then the romantic comedy is also legitimately funny. But you also feel for this cop who's tracking it down, but he's a Jewish cop that lives at home with his his overbearing mother. <laughs> I'm like, this is like honestly. I think I like this so much because I'm like, this is the movie that I wish I had made because I'm like, this is <laughs> so weird and so weird that it's from 1968 because it does kind of feel like in that just proto-American new wave when we're doing stuff like The Graduate, it kind of yes. feels tonally in that area, but then doing some weird, wacky genre stuff and that performance by Rod Steiger as the serial killer yeah. who is... His day job is a Broadway d- director and theater owner and makeup artist who does his own makeup for each of these killings. And the whole thing is just like a way for him to play these characters and to toy with his prey in this sick way where he goes after all these kind of lonely women playing like a wig salesman who's like saying you've won a wig and he's doing this camp, <laughs> this big camp characterization where he's playing an Irish priest or a German migrant. And I was just like flabbergasted by what this movie was. And I really enjoyed it. And I was on the edge of my seat the whole time going, not like because of the suspense of the murders or the thriller aspect, because I was like, what is this going to do what next? What is it going to do what next? What are they going to pull in? I, ha- I, have, I, have to, I have to secede some ground to Alexi here and go, I genuinely was like, I had no clue what was going to happen. Like in, in when worlds mm. collide, you know, all the white people are going to get on the rocket. Like no offense, yes. spoilers, <laughs> spoilers for 70 years. But in this, uh, uh, th- what's so strange is you're like, is, is this guy's meet cute rom-com overbearing mum thing going to have like a bearing on the case? Because what you see in a Zodiac is like this almost like, uh, you dismiss everything in your life. You let it fall away because you're so obsessed with this killer. And this guy is like mm. legitimately continuing trying to live his life while this guy is like taking over the city. And it just has such a laissez-faire serial killer. Like he doesn't care what he's doing. He's getting his rocks off, but it's not too crazy. He's still keeping a huge theatricality about it, but it is just a weird. And like, you know, it's, it's got those great tropes that like later on are like, you know, people spend whole movies on where the serial killer just like mm. Chris Nolan's insomnia where he picks up, you know, where a serial killer is like tormenting a cop, calling him yeah. about the death that he, you know, that he did or a murderer saying that. And, and in, in this character, it's, by the way, it's not just Rod Steiger. Like it's me, my natural voice. He's going like, yes, hello, Fraulein. And it's like, <laughs> the, it is, this is a wild freaking movie. It's wild. It's wild. It's wild. I think that if you have eclectic taste like us, Yes. Um, and if you're interested in like just something that really pushes the boundaries of genre, I would give this a tremendous recommendation just if you're curious. You might not love this movie, but I think you will be you wouldn't you've never seen anything like it is what I guarantee you tonally. This is the perfect like if you if you need to temper a serial killer movie night. Like you mm. need this in a double feature. Like if you're gonna Absolutely. dive into something, if you're gonna dive into something more serious, 
it's so fun to go like, what would it be if it, if it, like a serial killer movie had like a completely wacky tone, had infused mm. like rom com stuff. Like that is exactly the kind of that is this is exactly the kind of movie that you can do it. And Rod Steiger, I feel like is a is a huge guy for us in the in in the in the imprint um, yes. imprint companion so far. And I'm he just might like, be the one through line. I <laughs> uh, like he's. <laughs> We're just stock full of Steiger and he's just, he's, I'm in like, I'll, mm. if there's another Rod Steiger movie in the next batch, I'm in, I'm, I'm just gonna Cause it, it's a guy, he's a guy who kind of at this point in time, like, you know, sort of 68, this is where he sort of falls off, but he's such a dominant figure in Hollywood yeah. all the way up until this point, And then he does sort of fall away a bit, but um, yeah, it's, it's really great. And like, again, directed by Jack Smite, who did the illustrated man, Directed a couple of episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, but uh, The Illustrated Man, probably for folks, if you haven't seen it, you've definitely heard the ad um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood playing on the radio mm -hmm. in Rick Dalton's car as he and Cliff drive around the city. Um, but yeah, like this is, uh, it's got some pedigree. And I think the slipcover is lovely. It's a black and white image with these kind of grasping hands around the title. This is the, this is the serial killer serious cover. And then on yeah. the inside... And the inside is the more like rom-com cover. It's your Mike Nichols kind Mike of Nichols. Who, yeah. graduate who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Maybe even Birdcage on the inside. <laughs> Definitely. The killer, the detective, the girlfriend. Uh, this one's a little light on features. It's got an audio commentary by film historian. Haven't watched that yet, but... I just want to see where this place is in history, so I will be watching that audio commentary <laughs> on my next watch of No Way to Treat a Lady. And I would just say that I would actually give this one a recommendation if you are curious by what we're talking about and you didn't put this one in your order because, honestly, I, I have seen a lot of movies and I have never seen a mix like this before. And I think that's why I have a it's, a place in my heart for nowhere to treat a lady. It's a it's a, it's a it's a genre mashup maybe like you've never seen before, and that's saying something. Mm hmm. Absolutely. All right. Shall we move on to? I think this is one of your big highlights of this entire batch, and this is I think a good way to wrap up this episode. A George Stevens, a George Stevens adaption of an American tragedy called. A Place in the Sun. This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Montgomery Clift, dazzled by the radiant beauty of Elizabeth Taylor, a girl so far above him she seemed like a goddess, but only too human when he held her in his arms. So this is Spy Number 8, A Place in the Sun. A film which guaranteed immortality for screen lovers Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. A poor young determined to win a place in society and the heart of a beautiful socialite. Shelley Winters plays a factory girl whose dark secret will unravel his world forever. I think that I really like this film a lot. I think of all of them, this is the one that is a real American classic. This is a yes. classic film. George Stevens is uh, one of those classic master directors. Yes. I remember as a teenager, I watched this, um, this George Stevens feature length 
like documentary about his career. And it was like the first kind of like career profile thing that I ever saw because someone had bought it for me on DVD and I hadn't even seen any of his films at that point. But he's like one of the American masters, I would yes. say. Um, he directed Giant as well. Yes. And oh my gosh, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Give me a second, let me click um, it. Oh, he directed Giant, Shane, Swing Time, which is known as like one of the great classic American musicals, Gunga Din, which is a classic adventure film. So he's someone that he works across many different genres. But I would say that like Giant, this is something that I would describe as like kind of like a classic American picture. Yes. This is a Hollywood picture. It's an adaptation of a well-known book. But it really is the name American tragedy is very apt because I think that this is the kind of tragedy that can that only really happens in American literature where it is all about kind of like this class divide and having this hope and desire and not just desire but a need and motivation and push through this repression to achieve beyond your status. Yes, it's it's. Uh, for for folks who've never seen it, essentially Montgomery Clift plays sort of an estranged relative of a very very wealthy um, sort of factory owner at the time. It's in that post-war um, prosperity period. Things are going on. The middle class and and is sort of really building up in the states. And he's sort of they're, they're pulling themselves out of like you know the what was like Depression America and is now post-war America. And mm. he's sort of working his way up. Montgomery Clift one of the most iconic screen actors of all time. Elizabeth Taylor is, I mean, if you want to see her at the peak of her powers, like she's a young woman here and she has Absolutely. a magnetism that is like, it, it, she is hypnotic. It's just unbelievable. But the story essentially has him impregnate Shelley Winters's character who he, he hooks up with on, on the sly. And um, as things happen, uh, she she gets pregnant and he then starts up another relationship at the same time, essentially with um, Elizabeth Taylor's character, who's this, you know, young, um, well-to-do, you know, uh, very- Socialite. Socialite. Yeah, that's the best way to put yeah. it. She's a socialite and he's, he sort of sees one path of his life, which is working in the factory, working hard, having like a young wife, like not- basically staying in his class and then leaping into, you know, this prestige level, this upper class America, this big money and sort of breaking through a part that is, you know, into, into a stratosphere of society that he's never been able to get through. And it's just kind of absolutely devastating because there's nothing about it that like everything seems so trivial. And that's, what's so mm. bad when you're watching it. It's like this trivial decision of like, you know, having, unprotected sex out of wedlock it's a huge thing even being out of wedlock and courting a huge thing not then being able to make a like a decision that we have the luxury of now like 70 odd years later to like go okay we're gonna have this baby together what's gonna happen mm. none of that it then turns into this there is literally no way out for him and he's kind of haunted by all the decisions he has to make and then it get you know sort of the the, tr the great tragedy is that he makes a choice um to to try and um get rid of her essentially uh, mm. without, without being too spoilery. And I, I, you talk about George Stevens being a, um, a master. There is just something about, there's a whole bunch of sequences that happen at night and a whole bunch of sequences that happen in like a lake around lakes mm. and things like that in this movie. And it is deeply atmospheric courtroom scenes are outstanding. Yeah. I had a yes. really good time with this too. 
And I think as well that this is a really, like, to I, I, there's something about, like, these digital transfers of black and white pictures where I feel like they can really sing, especially like a 4K scan like this, yeah. where yes. the contrast between the black and the white can really, really work in a way that we haven't seen until very recent recent uh, like upgrades to making things be able to be scanned in 4k now and be presented in 4k 4k either naturally or like in this kind of slightly compressed version on a blu-ray where a black and white photography can feel like projection and can have the contrast that it would have if it was being projected on a screen and i think that this movie does it, it highlights that so well and the black and white photography just feels so perfect for something like this because it is entirely in this moral gray area. And it is all about like building empathy and changing empathy for which character you feel empathy for at one, at one, at each time. And it's a very, it's very complex in that way, but also it's so simple. And I think that what I really loved about this movie is that, you know, it does feel like this kind of lived in life and it does feel also like, that kind of like that movie magic that's kind of undescribable of this like classic Hollywood era of filmmaking. The first time where Montgomery Clift sees Elizabeth Taylor and it's kind of like that, that kind of like slowly creeping, like slowly creeping in of a dolly. And I didn't even know if that's what it is, but that's what it makes you feel. It's like that (laughs) it has that movie magic to it. Yes. And, and, Montgomery Clift is a guy who later on not gets exploited, but has the talent to do this so often is the camera squarely on his face, mm. watching him think and agonize over something and him be yes. able to like give you all the emotions. And I think when you look yes. at, there's a couple of great, 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 great sequences um, that he's just being haunted and tormented by the sort of two roads of his life that he has to either choose or, or three really, which is like the alternate road, which is like a, which is a pure fantasy, the road that he's on right now and the road that he maybe should have taken to sort of protect himself. And it's just mm. this wonderful, wonderful tormented thing. And I was just watching him going, um, you know, people were talking and honoring the great Robert De Niro, like around the time that we we're recording this, cause it was recently mm. his birthday talking about, he may be the greatest screen actor of all time that can just, the camera can go on his face and you can watch him think mm. and it's perfect. And I think yes. that people like Montgomery Clift start to show you what real screen actors can do. Absolutely. Because it, because it stops being, it's not the exaggeration of, um, you know, vaudeville that translated from theater and then into sort of early mm. cinema. It's like really understated, lots of things happening and just, but, but also like really being able to convey emotion. And I just, so for me as like, a massive, massive acting geek. Um, yeah. uh, as far as like a, as 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 an appreciator of cinema, I'm like this is worth it for Taylor's magnetism and Montgomery Cliff's torment. Because if you just mm. take those two things, like it's worth it. And this mm. one actually compared to some of the others is stacked with special features. I watched a bunch of these features as well. Uh, there's one. There's two big main ones on here. One of them is this featurette kind of. Dis- 
kind of following the production of this film and how it came to be. I believe there was a previous adaptation of this, but this follows like this adaptation and how they went about it and how they were kind of bringing it into the modern, into a more contemporary setting. And then there's another one which is features like a lot of like cinematic great filmmakers that looked up to George Stevens and all were contemporaries of George Stevens and talking about him. And it's interesting. He's a very interesting filmmaker and he's kind of like, it's weird. I think that he's not talked away about the way that like a John Ford or Frank Capra are. And I feel like he really should be. Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, you, when you look at all, the big ones are Giant and Shane, the greatest story of ever, the greatest story ever told, the Diary of Anne Frank. Like mm-hmm. he, like so many of those guys, did documentary footage. You know, he did the Nazi concentration and prison camps documentary yeah. um, in 1945. There's a stack of you know docos and things like that that he did. And you know, Gunga Din is a precursor to that, and like some of his bigger movies. But yeah. I think when you've got Shane and Giant and the greatest story ever told on your on your resume and, and this a place in the sun which happens um in 51 it's like yeah this guy's like one of the one of the true greats and then obviously he's just sort of um tapers off because they don't make movies like the movies he's making <laughs> like absolutely too, too too long after this the studio system can't sustain it any further yeah exactly and i think that He's someone where you can, like, I think what you said about Montgomery Clift is so right. And I swear I've read stuff about De Niro talking about him being one of his idols. And I think that this really does feel like a precursor to, like, a huge inspiration to that American new wave where you're yeah. dealing with like troubled protagonists, anti, not even anti heroes, just troubled protagonists and kind of blending uh, character portraits across a bigger kind of like more epic picture, even though it is kind of like this intimate story in other words. Yeah. Like I, I think the, one of the things you know, and I've, and you and I've definitely come across this um, being that the sort of new Hollywood geeks that we are is like De Niro, everyone talks about Brando. Right. And so the, on mm. the water, on the waterfront in 1954, is kind of like, and it, you know, funnily also starring Rod Steiger, like is yeah. is is one of those movies where you see Brando sort of doing what we would consider contemporary acting against these mm. guys who are so accustomed to these like classic old yeah. Hollywood scenery chewing, you know, you know, um, very sort of exaggerated performances, and he just blows them out of the water. And I, mm. I I genuinely feel like I was watching this and I was like, oh, this was a massive blind spot to to not talk about Montgomery Clift in a place in the sun, like, which is three mm. years before on the waterfront. It's like, it was, it was starting to happen. Like it didn't, it wasn't yeah. just magic that Brando did it. Obviously he's one of the greats and he definitely sort of, you know, he did it from then on, but like I was watching this and I, man, I, I that was a scene that like, this is why I love a Blu-ray. It's like, I just reround it. I was like, that yeah. is so, that was so good. Like I thought I was seeing something like, I was like, wow, that, that was so good. I'm just going to rewind it and check how good that was. Um, so yeah, no, this, this was a, this is a real highlight. Yeah. And I think this as well, the slip covers lovely. It's got our three leads and it also has, I like that Shelley Winters is not pictured in this couple, which is kind of like, it yes. is the tragedy of her character that she is kind of left out Looking of like away. this. Yeah. 
it's I think it's a lovely picture, but then I love this kind of like really passionate image uh, that is done in like kind of like a more vigorous style of yes. painting in like kind of in this image of Montgomery Clifton Elizabeth Taylor embracing and kind of like this passion fueled but also like very melancholy way on yes. the insert. I, I really, really loved this movie. I think that this is like an American classic that I've finally caught up with. Same. And um, I think I will definitely be watching this one again. Yeah, I, I'd go back to it just for the Montgomery Clift. Just mm. like just for Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor and watching them play pool together for the first time. It was pretty special. Yeah. And your heart will break for Shelley Winters throughout this entire oh, movie. She's just... That is a magnificent performance as well. Yeah, she's so good and also... One thing that sometimes annoys me when I, um, when especially when you're checking out old older films and it feels like super contemporary is like um, mm. police feel so ineffectual. But what was so refreshing in A Place in the Sun is like there's a police investigation that happens um, in the movie and like the police are on it, like they're actually on yeah. it completely and and her life is honoured and yeah she's uh, it's it's a real like it's just it's one of those stories that like kind of has gone it's such of its time and mm. yeah like I think. Yeah, man, this was a this was a really good one. It's funny, Alexi and I like, you know, speaking the inside baseball of this show. Like, Alexi watched A Place in the Sun before I had got caught up to it in this in this mm. um in this batch from Imprint, and uh, he he was we were on the text line to each other. He was like, A Place in the Sun is like my favorite so far, yeah. and he was super excited about it and got me pumped for it. And yeah, it's a, it's real special. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you just said what I said, so of course I agree with it. <laughs> but I think that now, I'm this... looking forward even more so to talk about the next two items oh, yeah. in this batch on the next episode because one of them is a real ripper Ooh. that I had never seen before. It's a, I mean, put away when worlds collide because the next one is a freaking rocket of its own. <laughs> and just before we leave you, we've done imprint six, seven, eight. Before we leave you, we just want to give you a little tease. Guys, we told you that you can hit Alexi and I up on Twitter um, um, mm -hmm. at both of our handles, but we would love if you could just hashtag Imprint Companion. And if you do hashtag Imprint Companion, we have an absolutely epic prize to give away. Two mm -hmm. of the Outer Limits complete series on Blu-ray box sets to give away. Alexi, how sexy is that going to look in someone's collection? I think it's going to look so sexy. This is another like quality release from Viavision uh, that I love. I'm a fan of The Outer Limits. It's an anthology series, not unlike The Twilight Zone. Um, I love like kind of like I love these old school sci-fi anthology series or more speculative fiction. I would rather describe it as. Yes. And this one, Proto as soon as Black I saw. Mirror. It proto absolutely proto Black Mirror, and seeing that this was coming out, I was so stoked to be able to get my hands on it, and even more stoked to get an extra one that we are going to be sending out to someone. So, what we want you guys to do, if you're listening to this and you're a collector, I want to see your collection. Use the hashtag Imprint Companion and at Blake and I. You can at me at this is Alexi. You can Blake at Blake at one Blake minute on Twitter. So add us both, use a hashtag imprint companion and show us what your physical media collection looks like yes. and point out where you want to place the <laughs> Outer Limits complete original series box. 
And we've got two to give away. So we're going to give away those two. We'll send them out to you. So let it be known what your collection and, is. Add us and, and use that hashtag. And we'll give you a little shout out on the next batch, the October episodes that will come out. So we're going to announce this on both episodes for the August 26th release batch. Um, and then you guys in between now and October, of course, um, pending the mail still working. Fortunately, we're in Australia. If you're an Australian listener, we should say um, uh, um, you, you're eligible for this. But in the United States, we, we yes. don't even know if you're going to have a postal service. So um, we won't be sending these overseas. <laughs> this is Australia only because we're doing it on our own dime as well. So I will be be sending to Australia only and preferably inner West Sydney so I can just walk by and drop it. <laughs> yeah. Southwestern Sydney, uh, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm up to catching a train and Uber. You may get a hand delivery um, yeah. and, and, a, and a social distance high five and air high five um, at, um, from your letterbox. Um, but yeah, so definitely imprint companion. Do that, man. Look, I, I we've got to, we've got to wrap this up because I'm dying mm-hmm. to talk about the next two. I'm dying to talk about it. Uh, like I said, you can find me at This Is Lexi on Twitter and Instagram. Blake is at One Blake Minute on Twitter as well as Instagram. Both, yes. Fabulous. We've got the demo in on both. <laughs> you can hear more from Blake over on the podcast feed for One Heat Productions, which, of course, is chock full of great stuff, particularly all the President's Minutes, which is the main podcast featured on there currently. You can hear more from me on Total Reboot, uh, which is the podcast I host with Cameron James, where we talk about reboots, remakes, and riffs. And currently, we're in the middle of a John Travolta, Travolta Reboot Spectacular, which has been a lot of fun. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you subscribe to Imprint Companion now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't rate and review Blake and Alexi's show, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you.